Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. It's January, which means that I am in the snowy streets of Park City, Utah, reporting on this year's Sundance Film Festival. For the next week, I'll be gathering the best critics on the ground here to talk about each day's premieres on the podcast. So stay tuned and also subscribe to the Film Comment Letter to keep up with our dispatches, interviews and more from this year's Sundance. It is day three at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, does it feel like day seven to everyone else as well? I really struggled to stay awake through this last one. Uh, but yeah, we've uh, watched a lot more movies since the last podcast we recorded. And, you know, I'm I'm churning the podcasts out uh, each day and hopefully whetting all the listeners' appetite. And for today's episode, I have a wonderful trio of guests with me. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Uh, you might have heard Guy's voice on yesterday's podcast. Yes, Guy yeah. Lodge from from Variety making my second appearance in two days. Mm. Uh. We love you. <laughs> or as you told me earlier when I asked you to come on, I'm desperate. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Robert, whose voice you might have heard from on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Yes, my name is Robert Daniels. I'm uh, covering Sundance for RogerEbert.com. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, it feels like day 35. <laughs> and we have Maddie, who you have heard on the podcast many times. I'm Maddie Whittle. I am assistant programmer at Film at Lincoln Center. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm so happy to be back. All right, y'all. So I thought that we would, uh, we have a pretty good haul of movies to get through today. So I thought we would start with one of the really kind of big, splashy titles here that has people... A lot of people raving, but then I'm also hearing some naysayers. It's a movie Robert and I haven't seen yet, but Maddie and Guy have. And it's I Saw the TV Glow by Jane Shobrin, uh, who debuted a few years ago at Sundance with... We're all going to the World's Fair. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't know, Guy, maybe you want to start us off on this one. Just, you know, tell us what the movie's about, your initial thoughts. Yeah, I mean, this was a, a much, much anticipated title, and it... It kind of follows, it feels like a companion piece to um, to their debut in a way, which that was very much about kind of living life online. Um, it was kind of a screen life film with, with a twist. Um, whereas this is also about kind of living through screens, except it's set in, or it, rather it begins in the kind of late 90s. And it's about a kind of young adolescent fixation with, a television show that bonds two two high school misfits um, and then kind of follows them in in unexpected ways through through the rest of her life through the rest of their lives and it's um, what seems a kind of simple setup but there's a lot kind of folded into it it's a um, 
obviously for Schoenbrunn, a very personal allegory for the trans experience, for that experience of coming out. Um, it, I think, but it's also meant to be, I think, kind of universally relatable in the way that we kind of let media kind of shape us and and kind of form our identities in in a way. And it's um, there's there's a lot going on in it. It begins as a as a kind of fairly simple narrative, and then gradually kind of breaks down into kind of fragmented sort of audiovisual assaults, which which feels apt for the theme. But um, I was a little bit mixed on on the effectiveness of it. But I'm I'm curious to hear Maddie on it. I was a bit mixed as well. Um, I want to start out by saying that it's visually stunning. And it's, I think, uh, uh, I'm, I'm excited for Jane uh, as a fan of We're All Going to the World's Fair. It's really a thrill to see them get more resources and sort of more interest and more, you know, just anticipation of of their follow-up. Because yeah. we should say that this is an A24 production. Yes, yes. Um, and I think that this is a film that is going to find a passionate audience. I respect it a great deal and I appreciate the allegory without ultimately it didn't land for me with as much sort of visceral immediacy as we're all going to the World's Fair. And I think in part that has to do with the fact that it has higher production value. It's, again, gorgeous to look at the photography, the use of color, uh, the use of sound and music is is really uh, uh, fascinating. But I think part of what I found so exciting in their first film was a resourcefulness that by virtue of having greater production value you just don't have that same sort of alchemy happening in this film and the sort of thematics are enough of a continuation that it felt to me like I it was something was lost in that translation to which is you know I almost don't want to say that because as I said at the beginning I'm, I'm excited to see Jane Schoenbrunn get more to work with and get more uh, uh, in the way of resources. But ultimately, it left me wanting something. And and maybe that's by design. It's a very sad film, a profoundly sad, because as you uh, mentioned, Guy, it's, uh, there's this really powerful allegorical story about the trans experience and also sort of adolescent coming of age more broadly. How uh, Well... I don't want to give up too much of the story because the discovery of how this television show, The Pink Opaque, works on the lead character is the film, you know, and it's really it's a process of discovery that you, the audience, are going on along with this character. But I'll just say that in a sense, the the central character is a bit of a cautionary tale. And it's a, it's a, it's the sort of uh, 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 takeaway is that, well, again, I don't want to give anything away, but there's a pessimism. There's a, there's, a, there's a sort of warning to this story about what happens if you can't find a way to be true to yourself or to be authentic. And it's very powerful. And I was unsettled by it, but it kind of ultimately just didn't quite land for me. And I think its legibility kind of as a trans story will vary depending on what kind of experience and what baggage the viewer brings to it uh, themselves, which is why, as Maddie said, I think there are going to be a lot of people who take this film 
very closely to heart for whom it's going to be a very kind of formative um, viewing experience. And in a way that kind of mirrors what the film is about, how, you know, certain people take a certain TV show, how it means so much more to them than everyone else and, and how much harder it is to to let go in some ways than, than it is for other people. Um, and so I, it's it's where I, I'm still sort of struggling with my experience of the film is is also some of the the issues I have with it and particularly it's it's kind of slight messiness and it's it's slackness relative to we're all uh, going to the world's fair which was so kind of tightly focused and, and formally designed um, in a way kind of feels by design because it is a kind of film about kind of kind of exploding out of yourself and 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 living outside the lines and um, so I think you know some of its um, some of its chaos is is kind of effectiveness, but also kind of occasionally left me a bit numb. Um, so it's, it's it's one to sit on for a while, I think. Yeah, I unfortunately got shut out of the P and I screening, which uh, has been sort of an unfortunate circumstance. Um, you have to line up pretty early for some of the buzzier titles here, but yeah, I'm still really eager to see it. And the way you're describing it, I think what I really liked about we're all going to the World's Fair is that it was actually very deeply unsettling, but also thrilling, you know, so it's unsettling, but not tragic in the way that a lot of stories about, I mean, that it's not about a trans person, but if you read it as an allegory about finding yourself and and sort of being a misfit, and also people like, even that is about people who connect to media as a way to find something that feels truer to them than anything available to them in their immediate surroundings. And I really appreciated that balance of of something feeling very thrilling and liberating, but also unsettling and creepy without it being pinned down as one or other kind of narrative. And I'm really curious to see um, what Jane does with this one. Uh, Another uh, sort of narrative about how we learn who we are through a media <laughs> and through our contact with with mediation uh, is a movie that Guy and I watched very early today and we can we can keep it short because <laughs> I think both of us we walked out and we were just like that's a no yeah. <laughs> but it is one of the uh, more anticipated titles here I think largely because of its cast the movie is Love Me directed by Sam and Andy Zucchero uh, it's a feature directorial debut by both of them and it stars Kristen Stewart and Stephen Yen, which, you know, I want to see a movie with Kristen Stewart and Stephen Yen. That sounds like a very pleasing experience for the eyes. Um, um, unfortunately, all too often, we aren't watching Stephen Yen and Kristen Stewart, but they're kind of <laughs> AI avatars. Exactly. Um, yeah. So in this-, this sort of, I, I guess the film would like to call itself metaphysical. So so let's give it that. Um, a kind of metaphysical love story. Uh, between set, you know, billions of years into the future, um, long after kind of humanity has self-imploded, um, about this kind of chance connection between the last buoy left on Earth and a satellite monitoring the planet for remaining signs of life. And, you know, it sounds a bit like Wally, and that would be cute, um, but then it kind of morphs into... Uh, as these two kind of objects of machinery find sort of humanoid avatars through which to live and enact their romance in a in a virtual realm um, via 
then ancient footage of uh, influencer played, I have to say, in that stage of the film, very wittily and exactly by Kristen Stewart um, and her kind of perfect um, Instagram husband. Um, and they kind of take this form uh, through which to to enact their love and, and gradually discover the the limitations of living that way. So it's a it's a sort of satire on the the superficiality of contemporary living that sort of takes a detour of about sev several billion years to um, for for purposes that I have to say I did not find very rewarding. Completely mysterious to me why no. it had to take this cosmic detour. One of my main problems with the film is that I just don't understand the logic of the film. I guess these, so the buoy and the satellite have some kind of basic AI, I guess, and they start communicating and that leads to some sort of like, takes them on a journey through all of this, um, it, you know, footage that the satellite has of all of the, I think he says like some many, many petabytes of footage of Earth's uh, inhabitants that have Seems mostly to be YouTube and Instagram mm. from what we see. And I guess it's some kind of machine learning process where they see and then they start to mimic these yeah. things. But at what point do they develop desires? I mean, why why does the buoy even want to be human? I mean, how does the buoy get introduced to the desire of wanting to be yeah. human or wanting to experience love? I mean, it's very unclear what, like, a lot of the film hinges on their sort of transition from AI to becoming human yeah. and how they are able to get close or not get close to that. And and therefore, it is a, a story about yeah. what makes us human. But to me, it just seemed so... I mean, it's so hard to care for these yeah. characters because I don't even know what they are. Because they are. aren't characters. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they gradually, over the course of another 10 billion years, kind of work towards a, a more authentic way of living, supposedly, which, you know symbolized by the increasing messiness of their apartment and um, the gradual shedding of the animation as they take on kind of human features and, um, you know, a, a potted fern on the windowsill and, and drinking water. I don't know. Uh, I don't know why any of this is significant when they're still kind of living uh, a facsimile of, you know, long extinct human life. So I don't know why that's meant to be a, a kind of heartwarming transition. It, 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 I, I found it all baffling, but also very dull. It, I completely agree. I mean, I think that just nails it. It's not very interesting to watch. A lot of the film is sort of stop motion when they're in the virtual world. That's almost half of the film. It's just, and it's initially, it's kind of funny to see, you know, stop motion versions like avatars of Kristen Stewart and Steven Yen. But it gets old, you know, you're looking at this kind of like clay model type yeah. world, very roughly hewn. And when it becomes real, I think it's supposed to have some sort of emotional impact that it never does because it's never clear yeah. why it's becoming real, what the value of that is for the characters. I mean, there's a whole sequence where Steven Yen's avatar, this AI, figures out how to make water, like the right <laughs> taste and texture of water. And he's like drinks it and he's like, that's it. How do you know what why? water tastes yeah. like? And also... Why does he need it? And also, <laughs> why do you need it? You are not human. Why do you need it? Why? I, it's just all of it is so baffling and poorly <laughs> constructed that it just gets in the way of investing emotionally in the story, which also... I don't even understand the emotional arc of the story, yeah. which is, I guess it's meant to be a traditional relationship drama. The idea is like, this is thousands, billions of years into the future, and they're not even real humans. And yet, 
being in a relationship is always the same. You try to pretend to be someone you're not and you have to be really open and vulnerable with each other. But why am I, yeah. wh why does this need to be relayed through this framework? And I will say I, the actors are innocent and I, I like them together as a, as a kind of pairing. And I kept thinking every time, you know, they were actually allowed to be, you know, human or human-like, that I would have just enjoyed stripping away all the kind of sci-fi faff of the script and just letting this be a story of a kind of perfect fake Instagram couple learning how to live real life. Absolutely. Um, and because that's essentially what it's about with so much complicating kind of foggy business in between. Truly. Right? You know, like her did something and very few movies have been able to replicate that. Uh, and this one was not it. I'm sorry. We can move on. Yeah. We have aired. <laughs> uh, we needed to have a moment after we woke up early to go to the screening at 9 p.m. But we'll, I, I would like to go on to a movie that I think is actually, you know, people here, or at least some of you like, which is It's What's Inside, uh, which seems... I'm saying some of you because, uh, Robert, I'm looking at you, but which also sounds pretty zany and like a very imaginative premise, but something that maybe works well. Maddie, I know you loved it. So maybe you want to set it up and then Robert will we'll hear your side, of course. Yeah, so I was, uh, I knew very little about this film going in. I hadn't even read the full synopsis. I just, uh, you know, I, I, there was enough in sort of the one sentence that I had read that I thought, yeah, no, that sounds like an interesting, promising premise for a, a, a midnight movie. Um, basically, it follows this uh, young man who's about to get married and who the night before his wedding, he and a bunch of his old college friends come together for a party in this big old house that belongs to him, the groom and his family. Uh, and these eight friends have a history. They have a complicated, fraught history as a group, but they're all coming together to, you know, celebrate and process things. And uh, one member of the group who has not really stayed in touch, but who is returning to the fold for this gathering, uh, brings with him this contraption this technology that he you know he's out in silicon valley and it's all kind of mysterious but he's been developing this technology that he wants to use for a game he he, he proposes that they all gather around and play this game they reference a past instance where they all played mafia or werewolf they can't remember which one but it's and 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 this character forbes uh sort of brings them in by saying this is going to be kind of a mafia werewolf style game and we're going to and um i don't know how much more i want to say i know the publicists are very very paranoid that we say no more than that okay um, Ooh, i, I got a i got a strict warning okay um, that's, that's good change my review <laughs> i don't want like i am so glad i went in not knowing what was yeah. in store and so i'm I will just say in very broad strokes that the way the game plays out is profound, was profoundly terrifying to me. I mean, I found it deeply unsettling on like a social 
anxiety level. Um, these characters learn a great deal about each other and about themselves over the course of playing this game. And uh, it's a very dark film. I, I have described it already to friends as diabolical. I, it's like almost like there's almost like a little bit of an evil energy in this film. But I just found it so captivating and anxiety inducing and surprising and it sticks the ending and the, the performances are incredible. I have to say there's a there's sort of a gimmick to the film that plays out across the performances. And uh, it just I found it pretty dazzling. So I'll, I'll leave it there. And I want to hear what both yeah. of you guys think. Yeah, I mean, I generally like the premise of the film. And I will say for like probably the first half, I was totally into it. Um, I especially love like um, the cinematography, which is just like, you know, the, the palette's like so bold and splashy. Um, I wasn't as much of a fan of, of the camera movement. This These like like these 360 pans he just kept doing and doing and doing and doing and i was like okay please set up a composition please <laughs> um, but um yeah and uh, i there's like i mean i, I like to say diabolical because like there is this like this um like chaos is like the feature of this film um that chaos and, is another word i use yes <laughs> you know chaos really is the feature of this film and to a point i was like totally immersed in it um and then it felt like the chaos became just a general mood rather than something that was pushing the characters forward um and then at some point i was like okay it feels like we're kind of like being repetitive in this like this space later on in the film where it's like this like ticking clock you know and i was like okay well let's let's get something on paper <laughs> like um and i wasn't as big of a fan of the ending. I'm trying not to give too much away, but it wasn't as big of, I, I think the, there's like, not to give too much away, but there's a false ending, right? And then there's the, the, the ending ending. And I, I kind of preferred the false ending. And <laughs> Although you, the false ending isn't quite resolved without, again, don't want to say too much. Yes. But you need that. Like the final, the real ending is crucial. Yeah. Well, it's almost, I almost felt like I wish I'm trying not to give too much away, but I wish like that had been brought in sooner and we'd gone through those complications more. I, and cause the whole time I was, I was kind of going through this. I was like, all right, but what about th this scenario? What happens if this happens? <laughs> and the entire, and if I, to get to it, like at the last, like kind of like two minutes felt like, Oh, this is, this is a little bit of a cop out. I wish you'd actually like kind of like dealt with this during the film. I actually I disagree with that so strongly. It, it didn't. I, to me, and maybe it's just uh, I, I get what you're saying about mm -hmm. sort of bringing that element in at the end, being sort of feeling like an afterthought. But to me, it just tied things together in a really satisfying way. Hmm. Y'all, if you if I need to, I will distort your voices <laughs> so that we can make. But I am so lost as someone who has not seen this movie, guy. You gotta give me some specifics. Who are these characters? What is this movie about? <laughs> uh, I mean, really, we're, we're under pain of death from PRs here. But I mean, it's one of those cases where, you know, we're used to publicists saying, please don't reveal the twist. In this case, it's like, please don't reveal the premise. Um, I will say, I think we can go as far as saying that there's a kind of role playing element to this game. Yes, identity becomes muddied. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And. 
exactly. And 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 so the 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 performances and the characters become quite kind of elastic. Um, and I I had a great time with it. I think it's I think it it's not a similar um, not a similar story exactly, but it kind of felt a bit like sort of talk to me and its kind of commitment to a very high concept premise and the way it kind of extracts every twist it can possibly get out of it. I mean, it's um, it, uh, for a debut feature as well. I think it's it's kind of just achieved with a lot of a lot of verve and 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 energy and and, and imagination and self assurance. Um, yeah, it felt very um, assured to me. My issue with it a little bit was that I never quite believed that any of these characters had ever been friends in the first place. Um, so they felt a little bit like kind of constructs to me, um, making the film itself feel a bit like a game, like, you know, this is a sort of, um, you know, Gen Z version of Cluedo or something, and they're all kind of, you know, got their different little parts and strategies in it. But given that the film itself is is about kind of game playing, I, I, I can forgive that. I think it's, um, there's, you know, a level of, contrivance to it but it, it does what it needs to do to work i also will say i i take your point very much that the this group of friends you know they're an assortment of types yeah. and it's i found it to be very much sort of in the spirit of friends going off to a cabin and yeah. encountering terrifying danger you know just like what if the danger is inherent in the relationships yeah. and what if uh and you know even if those relationships may not feel entirely real because they're built uh, across this network of, of types. It's to me, it was very cleverly spun as a twist yeah. on the, you know, yeah. Which is why it sort of reminded me of bodies, bodies, bodies yes, as I was well. A, it's just about that, to say that, yeah. um, that kind of energy to it. Um, so I think, I, I think it's, you know, we, we should preserve its secrets because as, as Maddie said, if you go in, knowing nothing, you you really will kind of enjoy the ride. Yeah, I mean, just hearing the description, I'm also thinking of this film that came out last year. Um, I, think, I think My Friends Hate Me, it was called. All My oh. Friends Hate Me. All I My thought Friends of that, Hate Me. I thought of that too, actually. <laughs> I also it's, thought of the, yeah. the Blackening as well. Another film that, yeah, mm. very much based upon like the, the fizziness of the relationships that are yeah, at the core of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering... Again, sight and scene. Uh, there seems to be a new genre of maybe the real horror is being friends. Uh, it's yeah. having relationships with other people. <laughs> well, it's also, uh, a, a, I thought, a very sly and kind of wicked indictment of social media. And it, that only that's that's not necessarily central, no. but it's very present in sort of the 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 threads of tension that run through this group. And uh, I, I just thought it was very canny in the way that it plays with how we relate to others through images and through, you know, sort of these facades of self-presentation that we construct. And uh, I just, I don't know. I, I was delighted by it and surprised by it. Uh, and, and certainly sharper than, Sharper and funnier than Love Me on the social media front. You know, <laughs> Sounds um, like. All right. Well, I can tell what each of you thinks of this movie, but I cannot tell if it is good or bad or anything. So I'll just have to see it for myself. Mission accomplished. <laughs> uh, I thought that we could maybe go on to a movie again that the three of you have seen and I have not, which is 
uh, under the radar brief history of uh, a family, which is in the world dramatic uh, competition, a section that you know sometimes has really interesting movies that sort of don't get a ton of attention. So I'd love to hear a little about it. Robert, you want to tell us about this movie? Yes. Um, so it is a um, Chinese film that takes inspiration from the one-child policy. Um, and it begins kind of with this academic kid who is um, bullied by a jock, basically. And um, somehow this jock takes this academic kid into his family, and then the jock's family starts to love this kid, and then they start looking at their under other son, trying to, th- I mean, they they start think, looking at their son, and, you know, they start to see his deficiencies and where, it's particularly the this, like, very overbearing father who, uh, um, of course, wants his son to succeed academically in the same way that this other boy is. Um, and then the proximity of these two children causes this family to begin to fracture. And what happens is this kind of, like, very, I think, like, taught, very, like, um, thoughtful drama on the pressures that this policy put on not just the parents who lived through this policy, but the one child who uh, um, became the product of it. Um, and I think the uh, performances in particular, um, particularly the actor who's playing the um, um, academic child, is so reserved and, and so internal and like in his um, motivations um, that we're not quite sure like um, if he if he's like this harbinger of evil or if he truly is like you know this kid who just is just looking for acceptance um, and so by you know by the end which is like very uh, I guess like you know, metaphoric and impressionistic um, we come to see that this like uh, like how much this policy has like affected children to the point that they become these kind of like mass-produced exports to their country and not actual people. Yeah, I thought it was very, very effective. And I what I kind of admired about it was I went in thinking it was sort of a family melodrama, which is how it starts. And then it it, it gradually kind of tautens and tightens into a, a real kind of domestic thriller. Um, sort of almost like Saltburn if nobody in it had any ulterior motive. Um, <laughs> and and I, I really, I, I think it's very kind of thoughtfully scripted and characterized that every kind of character in it is sympathetic. There really isn't an antagonist in it, I thought. And yet there's this kind of friction between them, between these two boys that, that becomes increasingly kind of perilous and, and even deadly. And I, I, I was completely kind of on the edge of my seat. I did not know where it was going, especially because the film doesn't kind of cue you into how you're supposed to sympathize or who the good guy is supposed to be. And, and I found it very moving in that respect and, and really formally so kind of precise, especially for a debut. I mean, kind of exquisitely shot and composed and in, in a way that kind of reflects the, the kind of pressure of perfection that's, that's placed on on this family and, and the boys in it. Oh, I feel like that I watched a different movie. I, I feel a little bad. Like maybe I maybe I need to give this movie another shot. But I was not a I I was not a great fan of it. I admired a lot of the ambition that you guys kind of are describing and um certainly the the sort of commentary on 
the one child policy, I think, was very much the most emotionally immediate and, and successful aspect of this film. But Guy brought up Saltburn, which I, is another a movie that I also didn't care much for. And I appreciate in both films the sort of class satire critique that's going on and the way in which it's uh, sort of developed in the context of this wealthy family into which an outsider enters. And in that way, it's also was reminiscent to me of Parasite and maybe to its detriment because I, I just thought that formally and uh, uh, sort of in terms of its construction, it just wasn't didn't reach the heights of Parasite and therefore I didn't find the meaning as fulfilling in the way that it sort of resolved itself. And I don't necessarily disagree with the ways that Robert or Guy have characterized the film, but I just found it a bit confused. Maybe that's sort of the flip side of what you both have been saying, but maybe in some ways I think perhaps I saw it in too close proximity to Saltburn because to me they felt like they were doing something very similar and similarly insufficient. Yeah, I mean, and I have no confirmation of this. Um, I think, Guy, we talked about this like the other day, but I felt a lot of AI artificial intelligence in this film. Mm. I think there are quite a few like compositions that are like taken from it, like especially the way this director uses uh, glass and reflection. And I think the um, the um, relationship between these two boys felt very much like that relationship in AI and like this like desire to be like seen by your parents and seen not just like as a extension of like their like gene pool <laughs> but like seen as an actual person with desires and and wants and um seen as a a, a 300 like a in 360 you know um as a person and so i mean i think that was really kind of what like drew me um i also feel like i have like i have an older brother and we are always <laughs> like i've always been like the the academically perfect one and he was not and so <laughs> these fights felt very 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 close to home to me um <laughs> and um but i think what the the film i think really really gets is how like parents can just by the way that they interact with their children can either like create someone who is like legitimately a interesting variable in the world or create someone who's merely just a copy of a copy of a copy. And so I think there's like this individualistic streak in a country that really doesn't value individualism. That's like going through this film and you see these two boys kind of fighting to be and well, one fighting to be an individual and one fighting to be a copy, you know, in, in, in some sense of, you know, in, in some hopes of being loved. In the unlikely event that my older brother is listening to this, <laughs> he has always been lovely to me and I did not see our relationship in this. <laughs> Um, you know, just just a caveat. I'm I'm the middle of three girls, and so I've sort of it's all it's all there. It's all. And I also like Saltburn, so that's oh. that's all my kind of guilt aired. So. I'm seeing it all: the middle child syndrome, the the elder brother syndrome, the younger. You know, it's it's all uh, the the inner machinations of criticism. You know, um, we'll move on to a film that Maddie and I just saw, and another film that. 
has been getting buzz though it's one of those films that has so many new york film people that i don't you know i don't know <laughs> if it, the buzz is in my world so guy you will be a good <laughs> good sort of yep. um barometer here but i'm talking about between the temples which is directed by nathan silver and uh co-written uh, the script has been co-written by c mason wells uh, it's stars Jason Schwartzman and Carol Kane and, you know, a kind of a bunch of uh, familiar faces. And it's this very touching kind of bittersweet uh, drama about a relationship that forms between this grieving man played by Jason Schwartzman, who has lost his wife recently, and Carol Kane, who plays this lady named Carla, who's having a kind of late stage uh coming of age of yeah, some sort spiritual awakening yeah, yeah i mean which which is which she sort of seems to channel into a spiritual awakening it's a very jewish film i should say it's yeah. very much set, set within the the characteristics of a jewish community and family jason schwartzman's character is a cantor at the local synagogue and yeah carol kane her character carla decides you know, her husband died a long time ago. She lives alone in her house and she decides that she wants to have her bat mitzvah now, which she never had when she was a child because only her dad was Jewish. She didn't have a really Jewish experience, but she kind of seems to project onto this bat mitzvah some, something she's, some kind of transition or change she seeks in her life that she hasn't been able to find. And the two develop um, a really unusual relationship. I, I guess yeah. I'll leave it at that for plot. Uh, Guy, what did you make of it? I thought it was lovely. Um, I really, I've, I've sort of followed Nathan Silver's films over the years because sometimes as a trade critic, you just end up being the guy who always gets assigned this one. Like once you've reviewed one or two, you're the expert. So um, his films always go to you. And that's me and Nathan Silver. But I've always enjoyed his work, but he tends to work in a very, very kind of scuzzy, micro-indie um, kind of form. And often often in sort of telling kind of darker, more kind of bitter character studies. Um, and this is, it's still got that kind of very, very kind of shoestring budget scruffiness to it. But there's a, there's a kind of sweetness and a lightness to it that feels new for him. Um, and... Uh, a, a, a genuine um, kind of humanity to this this kind of oddball relationship story that sort of begins as a friendship and then you kind of wonder what the what the parameters of this friendship are because the um, Schwartzman and, and Kane play genuine kind of kindred spirits who who kind of understand each other in in a way that no one else does. So you can't help thinking of Harold and Maud, but it's also not that story exactly. Um, and I think they're both so wonderful in it because um, they're both often kind of cast as types that are similar to this. You know, Jason Schwartzman so often plays these nebbishy kind of uh, 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 neurotic guys and Carol Kane is so often kind of cast as crazy, kooky kind of bag ladies. And and they get to play kind of more dimensional variations on that and, and with kind of, you know, actual human kind of flaws and the foibles beneath all these sort of shared eccentricities and I really despite the film's kind of slightly kind of cutesy construction you know oh old lady wants her first bat mitzvah quirky kind of antics ensue it felt very kind of believable and very honest to me and and I really I bought it and I bought them in it mm. yeah I 
I don't know. I've been, you know, it's it's only been a couple hours since Maddie and I saw it or less than that. And I wasn't really able to buy into it. And I can't quite pinpoint a particular thing. I mean, I agree with everything you said, Guy. I think it's beautifully performed. Uh, Jason Schwartzman, especially, he's just so good at playing like this mopey nerd. You know, it's like goes back to like Rushmore. You know, I see like almost a through line uh, in his characters uh, in the Wes Anderson films and, and many other films. And there's also Dolly De Leon, who people might know from Triangle of Sadness, who is, it's a very unexpected yeah. role for her. She's, in her second film of Sundance as well, because she's <laughs> also in Ghostlight. So. It's, it's true, yeah. yeah. And she plays one of Jason Schwartzman's, he has two moms, and she plays one of them, and she's like the more judgmental and meddling one, yeah. even though she's the one who's converted to Judaism yeah, to but be... But she has the zeal of the convert. She really has she the zeal. She obeys all the kosher rules. Exactly, know, and I found that, I, I found her character so interesting mm-hmm. And uh, and again, like a very, all the performers are wonderful and there's all these little touches, but something about it still felt familiar to me. I think there, every single character still felt familiar, even Jason Schwartzman's character, Carol Kane's. I agree with you, Guy, that they're playing more fleshed out versions of certain types that we've come to recognize them as. But there is, there was just something so oppressively familiar to me about this that just prevented me from really buying into it whether it's the the character who's like mourning a lost love and who has all these like you know kind of strange interactions you know romantically with other people and this everything just like they felt like familiar types and the provocations also felt familiar and therefore not quite provocative you know there's a climactic dinner scene where, um, which I think is one of the film's delights, but it also felt like something I had seen before, this kind of like messy family dynamic, you know, revelations coming out, people talking over each other, you know, uh, people saying, you know, sort of kooky things and then other people sort of reacting to that. And then the main character kind of breaking free from that and saying, no, I'm going to go for what makes me happy. I don't care about, you know, what all of you think. All of those frameworks and templates just seem recognizable, even though within them, the performances have these like really specific and charming details. But Maddie. I'm afraid I have to go now. I wish I could hear Maddie's tiebreaker on this one. Um, but I'm I've got to dash to my next screening. Oh, good to know. <laughs> you win. Boo, Devika. Bye, everyone. <laughs> what a note to leave the podcast on. Boo, Devika. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Guy. I appreciate you making some time for this. But Maddie, take it away. I, uh, I, I found this movie really lovely. I don't necessarily disagree with you that it's a story that is as, as quirky and rare as this story is, you know, the sort of Harold and Maude model of younger man, older woman finding connection, uh, which I have to add, uh, my friend Hannah Strong, shout out, she's another film critic, uh, described in a, in a group chat as Oive December, uh, which <laughs> I, I, oh my God. I appreciated. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Hannah. But uh, so it's, you know, the story itself is one that's not new. But it's so specific in its textures and unexpected in its construction and the way in which, you know, the the moments that we see between these characters and the way in which their connection is teased out 
I found to be surprising and um, charming and largely thanks to, you know, on the strength of its performances, Schwartzman and Kane are incredible and very subtle in playing these roles that uh, uh, you think you know who they are and you think you know where they're coming from, but they don't always quite play you know things don't always quite play out that way and i think on on a on a emotional and sort of um interpersonal level there's m moments of friction and sort of resistance that we see that uh i just found engaging and and you know through and through to the last scene and it's i i sort of wish we could see more of these characters' story, but I also think there's something beautiful about seeing exactly as much as we did and being left to contemplate what it is that these two people have found in each other and in this situation. And um, I don't know, I, I just, I just was touched by it and found it very funny. It's a, it's, they're a they're good laughs in this movie. Well, that was my problem. I everyone else was laughing and I just wasn't, you know. But I will say how I feel about this movie is it's it's like it's it, it's kind of cliched. Well, it's a cliche because it's true. Because I know Maddie saw this, I was crying at the end, you know. It get it did get through to me. Um and it kind of I think works because it is working off of truisms, you know, very sort of basic ideas about grief and how precious it is to find someone who makes you happy, even if that person doesn't kind of fit everyone else's expectations of what makes you happy and the kind of love that parents have for their children, which can be smothering, but at the same time, you know, really kind of nourishing. There, It's all just very familiar, but that's also in a way why it works. You know, it's why I was tearful at the end because I was like, love is special and when you find someone you love don't let them go no matter who they are and, like. it's, and it's you know I think uh, probably far too many Sundance movies over the last dec however many decades have been described as life affirming but this is a film that I genuinely yeah. think earns that descriptor because it's you know the, the Jason Schwartzman character is in a very dark place at the beginning of the film he's you know a, a a year out from losing his wife and he's living with his moms and struggling and can't find his voice, literally can't sing. Mm. And he's a cantor. And so singing is his profession. And the journey that he goes on to figure out how to find his way back to life and the world of the living, I found very special and, and, and not trite or uh, uh, cloying in any way. It's an, you know, maybe that's maybe it's a sensibility thing, and it, it it landed with my sense of humor in a real way. Ultimately, it's all a sensibility thing. So you know, um, that's right. That's that is that is what we traded. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note of polite and loving disagreement, <laughs> we will wrap up this episode. We got through so much, and it was, it's always fun when you know we everyone's not aligned on everything. It's the best part of a festival is I when know. you when you disagree. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, maybe at, at some point, Maddie and I will agree on a lot of films. It'll, it'll, it'll happen. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But thank you both so much. I I see already Robert, like the weariness uh, on his face from ha- generating opinions all day. He's been filing a lot of reviews for RogerEbert.com, which is he's something Maddie and I haven't had to do. So I will release you both. And but, you know, uh, grab you again in the next couple of days to talk about more movies. But thank you for joining. Thank Thank you you so much. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 